And welcome to Mount Calvary Church. My name is Matt Watson, and I'm the lead pastor. Uh, Elizabeth already mentioned it. Tonight we're having a night of worship. I sent out an email this week. Maybe, hopefully you saw it. Some wrote back to me concerned. Uh, what's going on? Is everything okay? Everything's okay. Um, though Elizabeth and I looked at each other this week and said, there's a lot of really hard things that our people are facing right now. And it's really not just been this last week. It's been a theme of our summer. Uh, hard things, sad things, brokenness and challenges. Um, and so we felt like it was really appropriate to kind of focus our night tonight on, on praying for each other uh, because we believe in the power of prayer. And as a church family, we need to come together and we need to first be, be able to share because we know that there's not just the people who've come to us with their challenges, but it's that we all have significant, serious challenges that we faced and that we need to come together as a church family, be willing to share because we believe that prayer helps and it fixes and it help, God comes and answers our cries. And so tonight, that's what we're going to be doing. Um, we will have child care for those that are five and under. Um, we'll also have some ice cream. And so we'd love to have you come join us tonight as we pray and as we sing to God. This morning, we're going to continue in 1 Samuel. So if you have a Bible, turn to 1 Samuel 10, continuing to walk our way through this book, 27 more verses today. So we've got a, a long story. It's a great story. If you remember last week with 1 Samuel 9, Saul's searching for the donkeys. And God in his providence is, is leading Saul to something so much more than donkeys. And in his providence, he causes Saul to bump into Samuel. And Samuel tells him, you've got some big things coming for you. You're going to be prince, the spiritual leader of Israel. You're going to be the king. You're going to be the man that God uses to protect Israel from their enemies. And Saul can't believe it. And they continue. They go to a banquet Saul and his servant, and they are kind of walk into this dinner that same day that they're looking for the donkeys, and Saul has no idea what's happening. Samuel sits him at the seat of honor. And so they have this meal, 1 Samuel 9. They go to bed that night. 1 Samuel 10 opens up. It's the next morning. They're beginning their journey home. Samuel sends Saul's servant ahead of him so that they can have some time to talk together alone. And so that's where we pick up in verse 1. And so I'll read there. Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, "'Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel?' And you shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. And this shall be the sign to you that the Lord has anointed you to be prince over his heritage. When you depart from me today, you will meet two men by Rachel's tomb in the, test, in the territory of Benjamin at Zelzah. And they will say to you, the donkeys that you went, you went to seek are found and now your father has ceased to care about the donkeys and is anxious about you saying, what shall I do about my son? Then you shall go on from there farther and come to the oak of Tabor. Three men going up to God at Bethel will meet you there, one carrying three goats, another carrying three loaves of bread, and another carrying a skin of wine. 
And they will greet you and give you two loaves of bread, which you shall accept from their hand. After that, you shall come to Gibeath Elohim, where there is a garrison of the Philistines. And there, as soon as you come to the city, you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with harp and tambourine, flute and lyre before them prophesying. Then the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you, and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. Now when these signs meet you, do what your hand finds to do, for God is with you. Then go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I'm coming down to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. When he turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart, and all these signs came to pass that day. When they came to Gibeah, behold, a group of prophets met him, and the Spirit of God rushed upon him, and he prophesied among them. I mean, all who knew him previously saw how he prophesied with the prophets. The people said to one another, what has come over the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? And a man of the place answered, and who is their father? Therefore, it became a proverb. Is Saul also among the prophets? When he had finished prophesying, he came to the high place. Saul's uncle said to him and to his servant, where did you go? And he said, to seek the donkeys. And when we saw they were not to be found, we went to Samuel. And Saul's uncle said, please tell me what Samuel said to you. And Saul said to his uncle, he told us plainly that the donkeys had been found. But about the matter of the kingdom of which Samuel had spoken, he did not tell him anything. Now Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah. And he said to the people of Israel, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today you have rejected your God who saves you from all your calamities and your distresses. And you've said to him, set a king over us. Now, therefore, present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. Then Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near, and the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. He brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its clan and the clan of the Matrites was taken by Lot. The Saul, and Saul, the son of Kish, was taken by Lot. But when they sought him, he could not be found. So they inquired again of the Lord, is there a man still to come? And the Lord said, behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. And then they ran and took him from there. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. And the people... And Samuel said to all the people, Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, Long live the king. Then Samuel told the people the rights and the duties of kingship. And he wrote them in a book, and he laid it up before the Lord. Then Samuel sent all the people away, each one to his home. Saul also went to his home at Gibeah, and with him went men of valor whose hearts God had touched. But some worthless fellow said, how can this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no present, but he held his peace. Let's pray. Father, as we study this passage this morning, may I be clear with the words that I use. May you guide the things that I say. May you open our hearts to not only understand this text and this story with Samuel and Saul, 
but may we understand it in such a way that by your Spirit and through the work of the Spirit that we can apply it to our lives. God, come change our hearts. Encourage us, convict us, and lead us where we need to be led. We ask for your grace in these next few moments as we hear what you have to say to us through this text. In the name of your son, we pray. Amen. I don't typically give sermons titles, but as I was studying this particular passage, I decided I'm going to give my sermon a title, a name. And so the name of this sermon for 1 Samuel 10 is The Stage is Set. The Stage is Set is set. And for those who maybe aren't familiar with the expression, it, is, it just essentially means that everything is in place for something to begin. So like a show or a play or a musical, all the props have been prepared, the literal stage, everything is set and ready to go. And the show has all the provisions made so that it can begin and it could begin and work flawlessly. And so this phrase, outside of just musicals and plays, is saying we, the stage is set. It is all ready to begin. Last week, Ashley and I took our family and some friends to see Sight and Sound, the show of David. Now, you're going to be hearing a lot about this show because it fits really well with what we're doing here. Uh, but I'll, and, and I'll use it as an illustration throughout, especially as we get into David. But I'll tell you now the show is fantastic. You are now required to go and to see it. I mean, it was overwhelming. I mean, tears in my eyes, encouragement. I mean, it is overwhelming. And I had been to another show before, but this show just completely was overwhelming in how great of a show it was. And I remember the first time I went to Sight and Sound which was just last year, which I feel like I'm confessing something that I've <laughs> lived in Lancaster for this long and not been to a show, but it was last year. And, you know, going into a show at Sight and Sound, I mean, I didn't know what to expect. I mean, I'm expecting a nice little stage, nice little show, some little props and some singing, and, you know, it is what it is. I, and so I had no idea what to expect. But then I got, I got to the palace or whatever. I got, it's like a whole town. And you sit down, and what, what was so overwhelming to me with the show of Esther was, was the stage. I mean, the curtains open up, and you realize this isn't just a, a nice little simple stage with a few props and little animals. I mean, this is a panoramic, all-inclusive town that you feel like you are, you are sitting in the town. All the animals running around, all the movement, all the changing of the sets. And I remember at David, the animals, I mean, there are animals everywhere. The goats went to the restroom right behind us. And we're like, this is, the kids loved it. They loved it. And so it's an, it is a great experience. And so for, for sight and sound especially, when you see the stage and you see the set, I mean, your expectations for what the show is going to be go up tremendously. I mean, you just know the show must be great with a stage like this. And we get to 1 Samuel 10. And, and as I was reading 1 Samuel 10, it feels like the whole chapter is about God setting the stage 
preparing and providing for Saul to be a godly king, that everything's falling into place, that God is doing all these things so that Saul, when he is announced king, can be all that God wants him to be, protecting Israel from their enemies, being a godly, humble king. And so this morning, we want to see, we want to see the stage set, and we want to see what what does Saul do with it? I mean, you read through 1 Samuel 10, and if you read it a few times, the, the, the thought that kept coming to my mind was, what is Saul going to do with all of this? Right? You keep wondering through the passage. Like, he almost doesn't feel like a main character in 1 Samuel 10. And, and you're, you're, the question that's being begged throughout is, what, what is Saul going to do? The stage is being set. What is he going to do with it? What kind of king, what kind of king is Saul going to be? What kind of man is Saul going to be? And so you're left kind of on the edge of your seat thinking, where is this going to go? What is God going to do? And so we will see the answer to those questions. It won't be this morning, but as as Saul gets into the kingship and he makes decisions, we'll start to see which direction he goes. But this morning is all about how God is going to set the stage to be a godly king. And so let's see that together. The first way that God sets the stage or kind of provides for Saul to be king is in the first verse. Saul is anointed by Samuel. He's anointed. Now this would have been something in the Old Testament that was only done for the priests. Never else in the, in the Old Testament is anyone but the priesthood anointed with this flask of oil poured over your head. And so you just have to think, Saul is just has no idea what's going on. Samuel breaks the flask and dumps the oil on his head to, to show Saul that the Spirit is upon you, that you, are, that you are set apart and you are consecrated, that this is, this is a picture, Saul. This is a picture of God's blessing and God's empowerment of what he's doing in your heart and in your life. And it would have been a really special moment, but you have to think Saul had no idea what was going on. And so he's anointed. God is setting the stage for Saul by telling him, you have my authority. You have my blessing. You have my Holy Spirit. That you are set apart. You are set apart to do and to be. All that I'm asking you to be is my king. And, and these, these settings of the stage, it just continues in the text. It's followed up by this affirming is what I'm calling it. Affirming. Samuel tells Saul at the end of, the, of verse 1. I am going to confirm, I'm going to affirm to you all that I'm telling you that that you are going to be. Because he just said, you're going to be a prince, the prince, the the spiritual leader, the king of Israel. And listen, we get it, Saul. You don't believe it. I mean, you're looking for donkeys. You're, You're hanging out on the farm. And so God, in his provision for Saul to be king through Samuel, says, I will give you three signs. I don't want you to doubt. 
I don't want you to question the calling that God has for you. And so I will give you three concurrent signs that show that what I'm saying about who you're going to be is going to come to pass. And so we see these three signs in verses 2 through 8. First, you will meet two men by Rachel's tomb, and they will tell you that your donkeys have been found. Saul has already been told his donkeys have been found. Samuel told him that in the last chapter. Yet the sign here isn't that he's being told that his donkeys have been found. It's that these two men know that they should be greeting him and that they should be telling him that his donkeys have been found. So the fact that they would even stop to greet him would have been a miracle, would have been a sign that they could know that this was going to happen. The second sign, you'll get to the oak of Tabor. There'll be three men, three men with three young goats, three loaves of bread and wine, and they will give you a very specific gift. You know, think of all the combinations of what they could have given to Saul. Three goats, three loaves of bread, and some wine. What what does Samuel tell him? You will get two loaves of bread. Not two loaves of bread and a goat and a sip of wine. No, just two loaves of bread. Very specific, and it happens. And then third, you'll get to Gibeath Elohim, where you're going to see this group of Philistine soldiers. That was in verse 5. You'll then meet a group of prophets coming down from Bethel, and the text says that they are prophesying, that they have these instruments. They're playing these instruments, and they're prophesying. And we know that when prophecy is paired with instruments, that it's more of describing what it means to, to worship. They are worshiping, they are reading the law, and the sign is you will join them. You will see these signs in verse 7. When these signs meet you, do what your hand finds to do, for God is with you. God is saying, Saul, I want you to be sure that you know that I am with you that you will see them, that it's confirming that you can do what your hands find you to do, that you can, be, you can be my king, you can be my godly king, and because you will know, because of these signs, I am with you. You think of Romans 8, 31. When God is for you, who can be against you? I mean, that's what these signs are saying. Saul, I know it's hard to believe, but no, I am with you. You can do what your hands are are called to do because I am with you. And so this is what we see happen. These signs are met. They come to pass. And then you get to verse 9 and 10. and, And where these signs have come to pass, this third sign almost becomes real time in the story. So the first two just were told they happened. And then verse 9 and 10, we kind of jump into real time, this third sign at Gibeah. Elohim happening. And so he sees the prophets coming down, singing, worshiping. What happens? It says the Spirit of God rushes upon Saul. So this would be our third provision, the third way that I would say God is setting the stage for Saul to be all that God has called him to be. The Spirit of God rushes upon him. God's empowering him. Now we hear the phrase, the spirit of God rushes upon him. He's given a new heart. He becomes a new person. We start to wonder, what's happening here? Theologically, what's what's happening in this text? I mean, our minds 
jump immediately to the New Testament. That this is a new birth. This is regeneration. This is conversion. But I don't think that's what's happening here. We'll see later in the story what's happening spiritually in the life of Saul. But instead, what I think is happening here is more similar to Judges 14 or the whole book of Judges. You see the same phrase over and over again. The Spirit of God rushing upon someone. And it happens with Samson in Judges 14. And the rushing upon of the Spirit wasn't conversion necessarily, but instead it was the empowering of God to complete some task that God has for them in front of them. And so for Samson, he tears a lion apart. But for Saul, what is this What is this rushing upon of the Spirit of God upon him? What's the task that he's being empowered to do? It is to be the king that God has called him to be. So he grabs the tambourines and he grabs the the instruments and whatever you do with those instruments, he starts doing those, playing and, and singing, and he begins prophesying with them so much to the point that the people around him say, who? Who is this guy? I mean, this is not the Saul that we know. We know Kish. We know where he's from. And it makes no sense to them. And so as the scene kind of continues to unfold, it kind of feels a little random. The uncle kind of pops into the story. It's like, where did this uncle come from? And the uncle says to him, what did Samuel tell you? Because they mentioned we went to Samuel to find the donkeys. And he said very politely, please tell us what Samuel told you. And what what does Saul do? You start to kind of get a little hint at where he's going with all these provisions that are made. What does he do? He doesn't tell him. He tells him about the donkeys, but he doesn't tell him about the kingdom. But the story, I don't think the story yet wants us to make a conclusion about what What's going on with Saul? The the story doesn't say that that was either right or wrong. It's just a fact of the story. Saul isn't ready to tell his uncle, so he does not disclose all that Samuel told him about who he was supposed to be. But we're not done. The stage is not done being set. God is going to continue to set the stage with Saul. And so he does it in the the next section in our passage in verse 17. The private anointing of Saul to be king now becomes a public announcement. Everything that he had done up to that point was private. It was between Saul and Samuel, and now in verse 17, Samuel is about to publicly confirm and announce to the people that you finally have your king. Now, it's a weird announcement. It comes off a little, like not what you would be expecting for what seems like an exciting announcement about this new king. What does Samuel do? Well, where is Samuel? He's in Mizpah. And do you remember Mizpah? It almost feels like Samuel can't help but preach because he remembers Mizpah. Mizpah was just a few chapters ago where the Israelites had a breakthrough, where they repented. They poured out their souls like water. Remember that? They lamented and they confessed their sin and they worshiped and they prayed and the Philistines saw what they were doing and they started to come against them. And what did they do? They didn't come up with a plan. They didn't go grab the ark. They prayed. 
They prayed and God thundered into the Philistines. And they won the battle and they built this Ebenezer. And so Samuel is thinking about this. Like here we are in Mizpah, it's a new generation. And he's, and he's preaching hard. He's calling them out. You have forgotten. You have forgotten that God has rescued from you from every distress, every calamity, every war, every, every people who've come up against you. God has rescued you. And so Samuel is preaching this message. And at the end of this kind of strong, bold message, he says in verse 19, you've rejected me. Verse then he says, now present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. So you're thinking, okay, this is not good. Like dad's coming home and we're supposed to go down and meet him. Like this isn't going to be a pleasant announcement. I mean, that's at least how it feels in the text. And I did a little bit of research on this kind of presenting yourselves by your tribes and by your thousands. The last time we see this in scripture was in Joshua 7. And the sin of Achan, when he took from Jericho things that he wasn't supposed to take, and God's judgment came booming. God, before his judgment, separated them by their tribes. And so this kind of has the feel that judgment is coming. And then they start to cast lots. Again, just showing God is completely in control of every detail of this story. And so they start to cast lots of all the tribes of Israel. And they get to Benjamin. They get to the father, Kish. And they continue to cast thoughts until there's one person whom this announcement's going to be about. And it is the person of Saul. It's like, okay, go grab him. And it's funny. Where's Saul? He is hiding in the baggage claim. Like, what is he doing? I mean, he might be scared. If, if it, it kind of feels like judgment's coming, so he could be scared that the announcement is going to be judgment. He could still be overwhelmed with the thought of, I'm about to be king. I don't want anything to do with that. He might have lost his sandal. We don't know why he's hiding. The text doesn't tell us. doesn't say that it's a bad thing. doesn't say that it's a wrong thing. It doesn't tell us that Saul is beginning to make bad choices. It just tells us he's lost in the baggage God finds him, they grab him, and they bring him up. And what is, his, what is Samuel's announcement? This is your king. This is the king that God has chosen. And what do they say? Long live the king. But are you tracking with how God is setting the stage? He's anointed him. He's affirmed in him that you can do this, that he is with him. He's empowered him with the rushing of the Spirit. He's now announced him publicly. And Samuel has said, this is the guy that God has chosen. And so continuing to, to providing for Saul to be this king. And then we see one last way that God is setting the stage, providing for Samuel to be a godly king. Verse 25. Then Samuel told the people the rights and the duties of the kingship. And he wrote them in a book, and he laid it up before the Lord. <clears throat> I mean, what an interesting little verse this is. He's reading to the people and to Saul himself the rights and the duties of the kingship. And you ask the question, well, what, what was he reading? So as I was looking at what he could have been reading, every commentator, every book that I read points back to Deuteronomy 17, that what what, Saul is, what Samuel is doing for Saul and the people of Israel, he is reminding them. He is, he is teaching them 
helping them to remember that God has already foretold this moment right now. And it's interesting, Deuteronomy 17 teaches us, and we'll read it in just a second, teaches us though, there's nothing wrong with having a king. Sometimes we think this was a bad system. It wasn't a bad system. It wasn't inherently flawed. The problem was the men who were the kings. And so God in Deuteronomy 17 says, this is how to have a king. And this is what the king should look like. And Saul, are you hearing this? Because this is what it looks like. Let me be very clear, Saul in Israel, this is how it looks to have a godly king and to honor me with a king. And so I'll read it here, verse 14. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. You may indeed set a king over you, whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers, you shall set a king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you, who's not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. Nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. And when he sits on the throne of the kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests. And it shall be with him. And he shall read it read in it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord by keeping his, all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers and that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right hand or to the left so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. I mean, if this is really what they wrote and we don't know for sure, but it seems likely this is the ways of the kingship that God had already told them. And that this is what was read by Samuel to the people. I mean, this is, this is outstanding. He said, this is who needs to be king. Not a foreigner, but an Israelite. One who doesn't take many horses. Meaning, when you get into battle, your might and your power and your strength is not your ability to fight back. But your might and your power is your ability to depend on me. The kind of man you want to be king is not one who's confident in himself to do all things, but one who depends on me to fight your battles for you. And he should not have many wives. You want to have a king and you want to do it well, have have a man who's pure. Have a man who's faithful. Have a man who sticks with his wife. You want a king? Shouldn't be greedy. Not gold and silver, but humble and focused on God. And I like verse 18 of Deuteronomy. He's to be a man of the book. It says he is to personally transcribe the law of God. I mean, isn't that great? That with the Levitical priest kind of checking your work, he wants the king writing the law of God, interacting with the word, studying and observing and thinking and constantly washing himself over with the word of God, reading it, learning it, because in that he fears God and your heart will be turned to him. That's what he says in verse 20, that your heart may not be lifted up higher than your brothers. Reading God's word, studying it, interacting with it, because it humbles you. And this is, this is all that God has done 
for Saul in this passage. He'd been anointed with oil. He's been affirmed through these three weird, random, but precise signs saying, I am with you and you can do this. He's been empowered. The Holy Spirit rushed upon him so that he can do what his hands find him to do. He's been announced publicly by Samuel. Samuel has endorsed him, publicly said, this is the one that God has chosen. And they shout, long live the king. And and it has been made very clear through the reminder of the reading of Deuteronomy or scripture of what the king is to be like. And so listen, it is all in place for Saul to be a godly king. I mean, that's where this text feels like it's headed, right? All these provisions, the stage is set. He is king. And your first thought is, what is he going to do? Is he going to make an announcement? Is he going to read from the law itself? Is he going to call for some worship at Mizpah? No, what does he do in verse 26? He goes home. He goes back to the farm. There's no castle. There's no worship service. There's no good speech. He goes home. And it just leaves us again. The question being begged of which direction is Saul going to go? The, the, two, little, the two groups presented at the, the end of this chapter. The men of valor whose hearts God has touched. And then the worthless fellows. You know, this, this reading of, of scripture of what a godly king looks like creates these two different groups. The worthless fellows, you say, well, how can God save us through a king like that? But then you've got the men who's a valor, whose hearts God has touched, and we're left kind of asking the question, who is Saul going to be? Which group is he going to be? Is his heart touched by God, or is he a worthless fellow? And if you want to know the answer to these questions, you've got to come back. How's that for a cliffhanger? You've got to come back. We have to see. We have to go with it in the story and see what is Saul going to do with all of this, with the stage that's before him? But I think this is a perfect place for us to stop. And I've been dying to get to the application here. Because here's the question for us. And it's for men, and it's for women, and it is for all of us. What kind of man are you going to be? What kind of woman are you going to be? Because our stages have been set I mean, our stage has been set. Every provision has been provided for all that we need for the life of godliness. And just because a stage is set and set really, really well, it doesn't guarantee for a great show. I was talking to one of my friends about David, and he had said, I had actually went to one of the first shows. And I don't want to spoil it for you, but I guess I'm about to. But you know the story of David. And the scene with Goliath, he was telling me about this, this scene, and I saw it. You know, David is you know, about to cast the stone, and it hits Goliath, and you, you know what happens. We all know what happens. He, he comes crashing down. The kids love the part. He gets the sword. Yeah, you'll have to go see it. But my friend was telling me, I mean, this is a big moment at the beginning of the show. And as David hits him, he said, Goliath started to spin. And he kept spinning, and he kept spinning. Everyone's looking around like, did I forget this part? And he's spinning, and finally a voice comes on the intercom. We're going to have to pause the show 
because we have a technical difficulty. So the curtains come out. They have to go fix Goliath because Goliath has to fall, right? And he said it was the weirdest thing. It kind of just was this abrupt, abrupt stop in the show and because they had to have Goliath fall. But here's the point. A, a great set stage doesn't mean the execution of the show is going to be great. And so for us, it, it is the same question. Our stage has been set. We've been provided everything we need for the life of godliness. What kind of man are you going to be? What kind of woman are you going to be? So just consider with me some of the provisions or some of the ways that God has set the stage for you just as we wrap up. You've been made in God's image. God made you in his image. That means in your soul is a part of God that causes you to want and to be able to be like him. God has freed you. Just, just think about this. He has freed you. If you are in Christ right now, from the shackles of sin through the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that no sin and no temptation can seize you, can shackle you, can cause you to be bound, that you can't defeat it, that in Christ and in the cross and in the empty tomb, that, that we have freedom and victory over sin. That is a provision that God has given us. That in Christ, that we have been given the Holy Spirit. And, and the way that it's described in Ephesians 3, I love this. He says that in the, you have been filled with the fullness of God himself. You right now, where you sit, filled with the fullness of God. I don't know if you've seen the pictures that NASA has released this last month about things that they're discovering with their, with their telescopes and all the, the ways that they can see deep into the space and that they're discovering these great, new, most magnificent things. And that God, that, that we're still learning about his creation, the fullness, the, all of that God resides in you right now. If you remember back to my Ephesians series, long, four years ago, long time ago, you remember the box, who we are in Christ, that, that Paul in Ephesians 1 says, we've been blessed from the heavenlies with every, every spiritual blessing. And the blessing that we have in Christ, that we're chosen, adopted, redeemed, forgiven, enlightened, that we have inheritance and we've been sealed in Christ, all these things. And so for us right, right now to just be reminded that we have been, our stage has been set. The reminder, like, like Samuel reminded the people and, and reminded Saul, like this is who you're to be. We have the reminder. We have no excuse for who we are to be because we have this book. And so what what is the show or what is the life that we are to give with this set stage before us? Well, Paul tells us, Galatians 5, walk by the Spirit. Live by the Spirit. Let the Spirit work through your life. Not anger, not jealousy, not strife, not envy, not impurity. No, you are to live and to walk by the Spirit. That this stage is set so that you can live a life of, of love, and joy, and peace, and patience, and kindness, and goodness. That the stage is set so that you can be faithful 
The stage is set and has empowered you so that you can have self-control. That is not just some idea that is like not possible because that's not how we're wired. No, no. The stage is set for us. And listen, no more excuses. No more excuses. Man, no more excuses to be angry, addicted to your work, mean to your wife and to your kids, to indulge in pornography. There's no excuses. The stage is set. We have been given everything, every spiritual blessing. And women, there's no excuses to be envious and argumentative, bitter, materialistic. There's no excuse for us to not be able to walk and live by the Spirit because of all that God has given us in Christ. And so this is the call for us. What kind of man will you be? What kind of woman will you be? No more excuses. The stage is set. We've been given everything we need to. Now may we just lean into and put our faith and trust in the grace of God that works through us walking by the Spirit. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you. We acknowledge that you have given us every spiritual blessing. And I pray, God, against excuses that we make about not being a godly man or godly woman. But God, that we would see the stage is set. Everything is there. Every provision has been made for us to walk faithfully with you. And so God, we pray for your grace. We pray for your help. We pray for clarity as we think about this. But God, I pray that we, we would be bold and courageous as we walk with you. And we would see all these blessings and we'd be overwhelmed with gratitude and that our hearts would be touched and we'd want to live faithfully, walk faithfully with you, that we would, we would take advantage of the blessings and the provisions and the stage that you've set in our lives through Christ. And so God, help us to see our excuses, to see the power and the provision in our life and to walk ordinary obedience, ordinary, day-to-day faithfulness to our spouses and to our kids, working hard, being kind, being self-controlled, being generous, daily things, ordinary things that we can do by your Spirit and through the Son. And it's in his name we ask. Amen.